Welcome to the Outbound Sales Podcast by Uplead. Join us as we share stories, insights, and advice from leading industry professionals to help you succeed in the world of outbound sales. I'm your host, Chris Zuby. So Joe, thank you for joining. Good to see you. Thanks for covering some time out again for us. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really excited for the conversation. Beautiful. So without further ado, I'll just kind of kick the door open with a couple of questions. Usually start off with this one, pretty general one, but how did you get into sales? What attracted you to sales? I think it was a necessity at the time. Like most people that land in sales, their career path has an interesting story behind it. I'll give you mine in a minute and a half or so. So right out of school, I took a job with a contract security company, just part-time, ended up going full-time. Before I knew it, I had spent 11 years there. I got promoted up. I was running a really large team, but it was all like physical, like biopharmaceutical, like corporate security, nothing to do with sales. Towards the end of my tenure, I did help our sales team sell a couple of other biofarms, right? They, were, they had similar programs to the one that I was managing. And I really like loved the rush of like closing a big deal, right? Like the first deal I ever sat in was like three and a half million dollars. So um, I think my expectations walking into sales were way off. But long story short, after 11 years, it was big layoffs when the biofarm industry was, was struggling. And I was young. I was too young for a VP job, too inexperienced for a VP job. And I was in such a niche, like I was making more than any of the directors in that company. So there was really nowhere for me to land. So I didn't know what to do. I ended up playing poker, professional poker for two years. Great. I had like some small sponsorships. And then I decided it was time to go and get a real job. And I didn't know where to begin. A friend of mine worked for a company called By Appointment Only. They're a outsourced appointment setting firm. And he's like, I think you'll crush it here. So I went in a couple of months on the phones, really figured it out, became a manager. I ended up opening an office for them in like Southern Massachusetts. I then moved to Arizona to manage out here uh, in the Arizona office. I eventually found my way to Sendoso. That was like my big step into the SaaS world and the startup world. And I learned a ton. Spent my first couple of weeks recruiting from my couch. By the time I left, I had a team of about 70. Uh, we went through an A, a B, and a C round in my, in my three years there. I then spent about a year at Upkeep, kind of, you know, B round when I joined. Small BDR team, no real outbound motion. Uh, went in, built an outbound motion. And then I had the opportunity to join the team here at Cube. That's where I am now. And it was very similar, right? They had a BDR team in place, but not a ton of process, really just trying to boil the ocean. So my first six months here was really all based on like building process, building a team, figuring out the right ratios, figuring out like we knew our ICP, but we didn't do a great job of like leveraging the tools in our stack to really stand out other than just, you know, mass blasting. So yeah, we've done a lot in six months. Uh, I think that will kind of give you some purview as to how I got to where I am today. Yeah. I wanted to ask on kind of the follow-up note, the first job that you started off with where you were there for 11 years, you got it listed as account manager. Was that kind of what you were doing? Was it account management, like running particular accounts? Or I guess, what was that? Yeah. I know it's misleading. My actual title was security services account manager. The way that company was structured is you had like regions and then you had like vice presidents inside of the region branch managers, and then you had account managers. So as much as like in the sales world, we really had account manager to like, I'm selling a book of business. What that meant is I literally managed that account for the company. So I was responsible for Biogenetics um, global security program. So okay. all of the security officers you saw in the building, the cameras, the card readers, the executive protection, that was what I was doing. So there was really no selling, but I know it says account manager and, and everybody always thinks like, oh, you sold for them for 11 years. I didn't. I, I sat in two or three deals. Once I was very, very experienced just to help explain to a biopharmaceutical prospect 
the program that I built and how we were running it because what I was doing was really one of a kind for that company at the time. Okay, cool. So then I guess kind of back to your experiencing managing an outbound sales team. Sounds like you've done it a couple of different times. What strategies and tactics do you tend to roll out? Like what's kind of your process? It's really evolved over time, right? Like my first crack at leadership was back at, at BAO. And that was very much like volume-based, no tech. We didn't have email. I mean, like, like we had internal email. We couldn't even like prospect with email. It was 200 dials a day. So I really like developed the ability to teach uh, first for myself to do it and then to be able to teach and coach how to be like quick, how to be concise, how to be repeatable on these cold calls and, you know, drive a ton of meetings. So I think that I've always led with the phone first. People say cold calling is dead. I adamantly disagree. I think that cold calling with no information, no direction is dead. But if you have a process and you adhere to like standards and benchmarks, you can be very, very successful on the phone. By the time I had made it to Sendoso, I was obviously familiar with tools like Outreach and Sales Loft. So got deeper and deeper into like sequences and cadences. And I think like for a moment in time, it was great to load up 100,000 people and press go and see what happened. And then, you know, over the last couple of years, like really during COVID, I think is when like being hyper-targeted became like table stakes. It's a non-negotiable now. So what I try to do is I'll come in and first things first, like you've got to tear out the database, right? The last few companies that I went with when I got there, all accounts were treated equal. And that's just not how it is, right? Like you've got accounts that you know are going to have more velocity and less friction than others based on all different data points. So, you know, step one is get in there, tear out the database, really give the BDRs a true book of business versus, hey, like go grab whatever accounts you want and prospect them. You know, from there, they'll understand like they're tier one, they're tier two, they're tier three. The next step is what is like the best of the best, right? Because like the, the battle with every good BDR leader is how do I balance quality, but I still need to get the quantity, right? It's not like you can just serve up one good meeting a month that closes, right? It's, you've got to serve up volume. So it's that delicate balance of like what has intent signals, what's going on in this account that means you should send personalized outreach versus leveraging a persona-based sequence that we've built out in outreach. That's kind of where the reps like sales acumen has to come in. We obviously provide like some guidelines for them, but like they ultimately have to make that decision. And the better they are, the better they get it at targeting and understanding intent signals or just monitoring LinkedIn for who got funding or for us selling an FP&A platform. If someone's looking for a VP of finance, like we know we can fill a gap for them. So just being tuned into all of those signals is really, really important to understand like where to personalize versus where to sequence and hope to drive engagement and then personalize. Right. Yeah, I really like that. What metrics do you tend to stay focused on? Like, what are you looking for when you're running these processes? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at everything, right? So there's the volume metrics, right? Your call volume, your email volume, how many people are you pulling into sequence or pulling into the database a day? I think it's all well and good. I can give you an account, but if you're going to work the two people that have been in our Salesforce instance for four years, you're not going to find a lot of success there. So, you know, we're really looking at like, what are you pulling in? How many new people are going into sequence? What's your call volume? What's your email volume? How much social selling are you doing? You know, and then from there, we use Nooks as a dialing tool. They have some really good analytics that we can break down, um, you know, dials to a conversation, conversations to a meeting. So, we're looking at all those metrics as well. I've been able to break it out by like industry as well, like selling into certain industries. Like right now, SaaS is is struggling. It's no secret, right? Like SaaS is a tough place to sell right now. And we've seen like our connect rates drop drastically. So if we're going to continue to try to penetrate the SaaS market, we have to do it by brute force. And that means we have to like up the daily KPIs, right? So it's very much a fluid number. I think a lot of companies 
okay, we're going to make 50 dials a day and send 50 emails a day. I'm like, that's it. That's what they're going to do from now until forever. I think that you've got to be open-minded to like throttling up or throttling back based on what the industry that you're targeting are telling you. You know, and then obviously the highest level thing that we're looking at is how many meetings are you booking? How many of those are converting? And what becomes ARR? Yeah, exactly. And are you pretty reactive to the market? Like if you notice that an industry like SaaS is going down and another one's like starting to do well, are you kind of monitoring that stuff actively and then kind of telling your team like, hey, go after this direction or stay away from this direction? So one of the things that I'm a big believer in is like, again, the book of business model, but then we also carve out campaigns. So like, we'll always have a campaign going and maybe it's, it it could be based on anything, right? Maybe it's some sort of technographic data. Maybe it's, you know, just industry specific, maybe it's ICP specific, but we're running those. And like, I'm behind the scenes analyzing like what deals are in our funnel that have like really good velocity. If there's a lot of friction in deals, a lot of things stalling, I don't want to go pump our pipeline full of more of that. Who are some of our best customers? We don't have to have the most of that industry, but the three or four that we have, if they're happy and they're successful, like, okay, we're onto something, right? So it's analyzing all that data and then going and doing like TAM analysis and pulling accounts into the database, enabling the team on this particular campaign, the talk tracks, pulling marketing in to make sure like they have collateral that's going to match. It's really a big undertaking. And we launch one of these every three months and it pretty much runs for the three month period, but we see huge success by getting super, super targeted, right? The world that I'm trying to build, which is the best analogy I can give you, is If marketing's providing like overlay, right, with like social and targeted ads, and then the BDRs are sending persona specific messaging, like at a high level you're getting from marketing, why should you and your company care that Cube exists? From the BDR you're getting, why should you as the CFO care that Cube exists? And my hope is by the time that you engage, the you have seen Cube in enough places in a non-invasive manner that the BDR has done their research and they're now speaking to you, Chris, the human, not you, Chris, the CFO. What I want to do is for like these sprints, I want to like be very non-invasive with the prospect, but I want them to see the logo everywhere. It's almost like if you were going to go buy a car and you go and test drive a BMW, you like it, like, yeah, you need a car, but you're not sure. In your brain, it feels like for whatever reason, every car you see on the highway for the next three weeks is a BMW. I want to create that experience with the Cube logo so that when the BDR engages, it's not like, oh, who are you? Why are you calling me out of the It doesn't feel so cold. It's warmed up. Amazing. So are you actively working with marketing kind of hand in hand to execute that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think one can execute without the other. I think the role of the BDR, you know, I know like a big debate is like, should the head of sales development report to marketing or sales? And the truth is I've reported to both and I don't really care. Like I just want to work for a good boss. That's where I'm at. But whether I report to a CRO or a CMO or a CEO, whoever, I understand wholeheartedly that I am the bridge between sales and marketing. And if you get a good, strong sales development leader in there, they will help bridge that gap. And one of the things that I try to do is define very clear lanes of ownership. Marketing, you own it up until it's an MQL. I own it from MQL to opportunity. Sales, you own it from SQO until whatever happens. CS, you own it once we close it. Everyone kind of stays in their lanes. It becomes masters of their lane. It becomes a full go-to-market machine. It fires much better than marketing's doing this. Sales devs trying to target these people. The AEs are calling the BDRs because they got blown off on a negotiation call. Like, there's got to be clear lines of ownership or it's chaos. It sounds like you guys have a pretty well-oiled machine as far as what you guys are trying to execute on. What does that directionality look like? Is marketing giving you the leads and saying, hey, these are the people that we're going after? Are you going back to marketing and being like, hey, these are the people that we want to target? 
Can you give us some air coverage? Like, what does that look like? So with the general database, again, like we're all prioritizing tier one. That's why we named them tier one, right? So just by like the course of doing your job well, marketing's targeting tier one, BDRs are outbounding to tier one, there's going to be crossover. And we want that. When it comes to the campaigns, typically I'll sit down with my head of marketing and say, hey, like we're going to launch another campaign. Here's the direction I'm thinking of going in. And then like, I want her buy-in, right? She knows yeah. the customer base probably better than I do. Like I want her to say, hey, good idea. Or I don't know, like maybe rethink it because of X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, we do try to collaborate on, like I'll show her the outbound content that, you know, one of my managers will work on with the team and like, hey, here's what we're going to go into outreach with. Do you have customers on file? Is there any chance that we can get on a webinar? Is there any chance that we can, you know, just spend some money to target this particular segment? And then that's kind of how it works. But yeah, I mean, like I need her to provide air cover and like she needs me to provide SQOs. So there's got to be a partnership there. Awesome. What challenges do you typically see? Or if there's a common theme on challenges that you see when trying to coordinate across groups like that? I mean, I think that, you know, everybody is obviously pulling in the same direction, which is for pipeline and revenue. But everyone else also has like all these other responsibilities. So it's getting everybody aligned to prioritize the same things at the same time. And I think that is not a unique challenge that that exists everywhere, right? Like people are just busy. There's a lot going on. And every time that, you know, somebody asks something of me or I ask something of them, like it's time away from whatever else is on my list of things to do. I think like, you know, one of the places that a lot of companies run into friction is like attribution, right? Because now you've got like marketing chasing after the same accounts as BDRs are. And then it's like, is it first touch? Is it last touch? Is it somewhere in the middle? I think that that can get tough sometimes to sort out. But again, I think it goes back to if you've got a good enough relationship with the marketing leader, if you've got an ROE in place, like you just got to fall back on it. But yeah, I mean, it's not easy, right? It's, I mean, if it was easy, none of us would exist. But as long as we're driving pipeline and hitting plan and serving up, you know, enough for the account executives to drive revenue, in some ways, the rest is just details. I don't know who said it, but there's that quote out there that like revenue solves 99% of companies' problems. Like it is true, right? <laughs> Definitely. Back to like within the pocket of sales development, it can be obviously a very challenging job, ton of rejection. What tactics do you employ to keep your team motivated and, and keep them energized? Yeah, I think it's a tough one because if you had asked me three years ago, can you lead a sales development team in a remote world? I would have told you absolutely not. It'll never work. However, when you're absolutely forced to, it's amazing what you can accomplish. But now that, you know, we're post-pandemic, companies are still remote. And I think like it is a lot harder to drive engagement across like some of the youngest folks in the workforce. Like there's a whole element of career development that I think, you know, 20-something year olds are missing out on. I can think back to when I was a BDR, I was so bad at the job my first few months, right? First time doing it, like I was awful. Like after my second month, I asked my manager if I was going to be fired. And I actually moved my desk. We were in like cubes with the high walls back then next to like the best performer on my team. And I just listened and listened and listened. And I started emulating and started emulating. And before I knew it, every month it was me, him and one other guy competing for the top salesperson out of 200. But I can guarantee you, if I didn't have the ability to sit next to him, ask him a bunch of questions, form a friendship, use him as a mentor, I would have never lasted as a sales rep, never mind became a manager and everything else that happened. So I think like that's the challenge that we face. It's going to be so intentional, right? Like I didn't have to ask him to stop dialing or stop producing for two or three or four hours a week to coach me. All I had to do was do my job. And when I heard him pitching, stop and listen for 30 seconds. And like that is lost, right? Again, that's part of the reason why we went out and got Nooks. It brings some of that back. 
So, you know, we do team like dialing power hours every single day. So the whole team's in there. They can interact. They can talk. They can see each other. We try to have, you know, morning standups where we kind of talk, you know, daily forecasts, a couple of team meetings a week. But, you know, again, like all the meetings are taxing, right? Because like leadership has to prepare something for them. They have to be ready for them. And it's, you know, 15 minutes here, a half an hour there, 45 minutes there. Like we're not driving pipeline. It's a challenge, but I think you have to do things to make the job fun, whether it's, you know, a random team happy hour, whether it's, say, let's just get together and have lunch. Let's play a virtual game. We've got to find a way to drive that consistency. I think like now that people are traveling again, we do at least have the ability to kind of fly everybody into a location and spend a day or two together. And I think like that goes miles for morale. Again, you can do it maybe once or twice a year, but I think that you get a really good morale boost for a couple of months and some new friendships are formed. And it's a little easier to ask that stranger for 15 minutes on Zoom because they're doing this thing amazing and you just can't figure it out. Yeah. Maybe a weird question, but like, is there any way that you like quantify some of those intangible moments where you're getting the team kind of cooperating together? Like, have you noticed when you run those type of setups for the team, like you will notice an increase in performance? Like, is there anything tangible there that you could decipher? I don't know. I think what I can definitely decipher and like data is never going to tell me this, but you can just sense the energy is different. If we do like one of those team lunches the next day when everyone's in power hour and nooks, like the energy is just a little bit different. Better energy typically leads to better results. But, you know, it's an interesting point. Like I haven't actually run the data around. We typically set 10 meetings every Friday, but we did a team breakfast today. Like, do we set more? Like, I think like that's a tough one to calculate. But I do think that even if it's not driving more production, it certainly isn't driving less production. And if nothing else, it's giving you a happier group of employees, right? Like the individual contributors are the lifeline of the organization. If they're unhappy and they're unengaged and you have constant turnover because they're packing up and quitting, you've got way bigger problems on your hands. So for me, the fact that we've had almost no one resign from their position since I've been here, uh, I think there's been one person who took another opportunity, tells me that like we're doing something right to keep people engaged. Cool. Switching gears a little bit, you recently posted a book called Now That's How You Lead an SDR Team that I believe one of your colleagues had come up with. You want to plug that at all? Is there anything in particular from that that you wanted to, to share? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, I actually went through it very quickly on over a weekend. I think that was the post. I was like, oh, I got my weekend reading now. Yeah, I think that it's just like solid fundamentals for how to lead individuals, right? And like, that's something I'm super, super passionate about. Like, if you were to ask me, like, what do I think my best attribute as a sales leader is? I would tell you that it's like people leadership. And I think like that's something that absolutely can't be lost. You know, and I just kind of touched on it, right? If, if you've got a bunch of unhappy reps and, you know, people are quitting and just not working hard, like you're never going to be successful. So you've got to do stuff to drive engagement, keep them engaged, provide, you know, promotional opportunities and just really get them involved with the company more than just the next hundred dials. And I think like I've seen it yeah. a million times with BDR teams where it's, all right, I'm going to come in, I'm going to bang out a hundred dials. I hope somebody answers. And I don't know what the heck's happening after I set these meetings, right? So I could be better at this, I'll admit it, but I do really try to emphasize the business impact the BDRs have on the business, right? Like I don't want them thinking, yeah, it's just another one of 20 meetings I'm going to set this month. I hope it moves the pipeline so I get paid. Like that opportunity that has, you know, a 20k price tag attached to it could actually be worth millions of dollars in the future to this company as they sign and re-sign and potentially expand and all the other amazing things that can happen when you have a good customer. So I really try to help them see the big picture. And, you know, as much as we don't compensate BDRs on source close one revenue, we celebrate the heck out of it because I want them to know, like, hey, you were a big part of this deal. You don't make that call. You didn't send that great follow-up email. 
we never talked to this person and it's X amount of dollars that we don't have this quarter. Yeah. I mean, the BDR sales development org is the, the battery behind everything. So I think that that's a good point to just kind of touch on and, and make sure that they realize how important to the org they are, kind of that lifeblood. What would you say are the most important skills for an SDR? What do you look yeah. for? When I interview somebody, there's three things I'm really looking for. Um, grit, for obvious reasons, right? Like you can be the best BDR in the world and you're going to get told no probably 75, 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. So who's the person that can take that in stride, move forward, keep a good attitude? Who's the person that, you know, especially in the startup world, right? Like things change. You have to get comfortable in the chaos. Just when you think like, okay, cool. Like we got this figured out. We're on this path. You know, to them, it's it's me throwing a curveball at them, but it's, it's, you know, it's obviously a bigger picture. So like grit is really, really important. Coachability. Like I can teach people who are engaged a lot of different things, right? We can teach them the tech stack. We can teach them how to pitch. And again, like, as I said, we're going to pivot. We're going to switch lanes and you've got to be open and you've got to be coachable to really stepping out of your comfort zone and trying to do something maybe a way you haven't done it in the past to see if it drives success. And the last thing is intrinsic motivation. Like I just touched on some of the things I can teach you. I cannot teach you to care. Like, if you don't want this for yourself, I can spend a hundred hours training you and it's never going to click because I can't want it for you. It's the one thing I can't do. How are you checking for that during interviews? Like, do you have like a particular like set of questions that you go to? Those can be hard things I would imagine to just parse out in a short conversation with somebody. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> interviewing is a skill in itself. You know, I do ask questions that will kind of lead people down the path of having the opportunity to display times that they've shown grit, right? Like, like, Hey, when were you really up against it with the week to go and got over the hump, right? Things like that. It shows that they can dig in and get it done. Coachability. There's a couple of things, obviously, like looking at somebody's background could tell you a lot about coachability, right? If you look at like some of this may have been promoted through an organization before, or, you know, like athletes at the high school or college level, like obviously if they played a team sport, they had to take constructive feedback at some point in their life and put it into action to continue to, to progress in that sport. You know, I think motivation is the toughest one, right? Because anybody can come off motivated for 45 minutes on a Zoom call, but the rubber meets the road when they come out of like our onboarding boot camp and get on the phones and get told no the first five times. Like then you start to see how motivated they really are or not. But yeah, I mean, that's how I approach it. I, I try to ask probing questions. I try to dig like two and three layers deep into answers. I've done literally thousands of interviews, if not tens of thousands of interviews in my life. You get to know like the candidate. I can almost answer the question, right? Like, hey, tell me about a time you did X. And like, I know it's going to be something in this realm. Now, when somebody yeah. catches me off guard with an answer, I typically love it. But I've gotten better at like, okay, tell me more. Okay, so how exactly did that work? And like yeah. really making them like get deeper into the story. Because I think that in interviews, people want to give you the best answer, but they want to be concise because they don't want to talk for 25 minutes either. Yeah, kind of like breaking through that canned response. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nice. I like that. When you think about other teams or other companies that are making mistakes in their outbound motion, where do you see mistakes happening? I think that mistakes are happening by like zero attention to detail. I can't tell you how many times I get that email that says, hi, first name. I think that companies that have not teared out a database, like like I talked about kind of at the top of this conversation, um, and they're just totally like spraying and praying, you know, anyone they can get a hold of. I get a lot of outreach for things that like aren't even close to my responsibility. It's unbelievable. Like I'll answer a phone and you know, they're talking to me about something that's so far from my responsibility. I mean, how? what do you think I do? And like, I can literally like hear them scrambling to like get my title. And like you know, a few times like, oh yeah, I don't think it's you. So I think like, you know, that's all stuff that, yeah, it was 30 seconds of my life and it, it wasn't a huge deal, but it gives you an impression of the company. 
And I think like that's something that BDRs, you know, maybe lose sight of at times. And I, and I try to like remind them, like, listen, win, lose, or draw as far as you pitching this person and trying to get a meeting. Just remember, you are probably the first interaction they've ever had with Cube. And it has to be a good one because if they say no to you because they're in a contract with a competitor in six months or eight months or 12 months, when it's time to reevaluate, maybe they're not happy and they come back up in your sequence and they remember like, hey, like this was a good conversation. They were respectful. They they made a good impression on me. Now it's time to check them out. Like it's tough for a BDR who lives like in a month to month, day to day meeting right. to think like, well, I'm building pipeline for eight months from now. But mm-hmm. if you make enough calls, you talk to enough people, all of a sudden you're going to find like each month you're looking at your calendar, and you have one or two like really solid follow-ups. And now you're, you know what, 20, 20, 25% you to the quota because you had these really good follow-ups and conversations and protected the company's brand and, and even your own personal brand. I really like that answer. And it seems like if I could like try to put a bow around kind of a lot of the themes I think that have come from you so far is like, you're not necessarily going to get somebody, even if you have the perfect pitch, like right then and there, like it's more about getting marketing involved and having those multiple touch points, kind of breaking down those original barriers, almost like getting advertisements in the door on these people so that they start to become familiar with you so that maybe just one of those times you'll kind of break over that hump and then you'll be kind of on that downward slope. Would you say that that's yeah, I mean, it, it, Yeah, absolutely. And like, I mean, I, I've learned that in my own career, right? Again, I mean, I was a BDR for a long time and there were people that I talked to 10, 12 times. And, you know, it was over five and six and seven months. And then finally, like I caught them on the right day and like something had shifted internally and they were ready to talk. You know, one of the things that's like an unpopular topic and like I cringe to even say it, but there comes a time in a pitch or in an engagement to throw in the towel and realize like the prospect's not just blowing me off or giving me some BS objection. This legitimately is not a tool for them right now. So how do I like end this on good terms Maybe send a little follow up so like I'm in their inbox, get them in some sort of a nurture campaign and find out like when it's legitimately fair to follow back up. And like it's a tough pill to swallow in the moment because, again, like we're in this cycle of, you know, and, and again, like as the leader, right, me and, and like the frontline managers are, you know, set more. Let's set 10 today. Let's set 20 today. Let's get 50 this week, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And like everyone's go, go, go. But I think sometimes there are those instances where you get, all right, like I get it. Now's not the time. You're genuine. You're sincere. I appreciate the time. Is it fair if I follow up in three months? You know, sometimes you got to cut bait, but salvage that relationship. Absolutely. Do you have like a certain number of touches that you tell your team? Like, well, you've gotten to this person 20 times and they're not responding or, if you know, cut ties after the fifth, no contact. Or like, do you have like a a number that you tend to use as uh, the target? So, yeah, so we have them run through like the sequence, right? So the sequences, like, depending on the which particular campaign they're running, they're basically working that person through completion, right? Most of our sequences last about 30 days. Um, and it's because we are a little bit call heavy. I think that people hear 30 days like, oh, wow, like that's too long. But it's not like we're emailing them 30 consecutive times. We're not leaving them 30 consecutive voicemails. It's a mix, right? It's got to be an omni-channel approach, right? So yeah, there's some calls. Yeah, there's some emails. There's some social touches. Like maybe even some of those touches are like send LinkedIn requests. Like you're not really prospecting them, but you're just trying to get on their radar. So, you know, it's typically a 30-day sprint and then We'll kind of let the account cool and revisit it a month or two or three months down the road. You know, the other thing that I think BDRs need to be very aware of is just because this contact is exhausted doesn't mean the company is. Like, have you really searched high and low and pulled anybody and everybody in from that company that makes sense for us to talk to, right? So you can't get a hold of the controller to save your life. 
Maybe that controller just never, ever answers any sort of cold outreach. Mm -hmm. Maybe the VP of finance does. And like, if we're not taking the time to look in whatever our data provider is and find that VP of finance, we're probably missing an opportunity there. Beautiful. So we've got a few minutes left here. So I have a couple I wanted to lob your way here to kind of close things out. If you could offer one piece of wisdom to a growing outbound sales team, what would that be? Get your process in place, like as early as possible, right? Like sales teams and sales development teams, like they go through this evolution. And I don't know, I've been fortunate or maybe unfortunate. I, I have gray hairs to show for this, but I've been in a situation a couple of times where I'm basically starting at zero and I've got to build it to something, right? And and like, you hope that something is an IPO or a massive exit or whatever it might be. But the earlier you start to implement process, the better off you are. My first crack at this, I mentioned earlier, I was, I was at Sendoso very early. I was, for the first time in my life, not only like building a team from scratch, but I was also trying to prove a market. Like there was no product market fit. When I joined, no one knew what direct mail was. So that was a whole nother issue I had to tackle that I never anticipated having. So it was, okay, let's talk to as many people as humanly possible, get a million emails out, make a million phone calls, see if anybody cares about direct mail. And then quickly we realized they do. And, you know, the snowball effect started happening, tons and tons of meetings, but no real pipeline, right? We were talking to all the wrong people, all the wrong companies. And fortunately, very early on, I got into the data really deep and I realized one thing, like in that particular instance, like a four-person marketing team simply couldn't manage a platform like Sendoso had. So I basically looked for any company that was using Marketo. And I was like, hey, like we have a couple of customers who use Marketo. They're some of our best customers. And I just figured out here's why, right? They have a sophisticated marketing team. They clearly have money. They probably have budget that they can shift from other things into direct mail. And they have enough people to manage the process. And like that was really for me when like, I kind of made my name there. Like when we rolled out that campaign, it was the first time we ever did anything like it. And it just exploded. Like we had a million meetings, tons of really good pipeline, a bunch of deals closed. And like, honestly, like for me, for the next two and a half years, it was really like up and to the right, like team size wise, responsibility wise, title wise, production wise. So, you know, I learned a ton just because I had a conversation with the guy that was my boss at that point. And we stumbled into like, let's look at this Marketo thing. So like sometimes it's, it's dumb luck, but like my takeaway there is build a process get into the data. Like the earlier stage you are, the harder it is, right? Maybe you don't have an ops team yet. It's harder and harder to get your arms around that data, but get whatever you can to start to make educated decisions. And the other thing is like, never put all your eggs in one basket. After we did that Marketo campaign, I thought to myself, huh, let's do this. And and I'm not going to say what it was. I don't want to put another tool down, but Hey, we're going to do everyone that uses this particular tool. And it was an absolute dud. And I had pivoted the whole team in this direction off of like a gut feeling. And I had that uh oh moment like two weeks in, like we have nothing moving. And, you know, to counteract it, it might not have been the best decision. I just basically was like, all right, guys, like back to spray and pray, like just go get email. And it worked. Like I probably got lucky in hindsight, but, you know, it's just analyze your data and start to build process. Talk to other leaders. You have to get alignment. Like you cannot just change things in a silo and expect other leaders to know what's happening. Like, and then that's tough sometimes because maybe they don't agree. Maybe they're going to ask some tough questions. Maybe there's going to be some negotiation, some give and take on like what this is going to look like. But if all of leadership is doing everything in a silo, all you're going to do is break each other's processes and reporting and hinder everyone's ability to do their job in the most efficient way. Like, I think those are probably the three big things that I think about on day one, just based on all the mistakes I've made over the years. Awesome. Yeah, I love that answer. 
And then going in a little bit of a different direction again here, just objectively speaking, technology has kind of really warped the sales job over the course of the last decade or so. A, what are your thoughts on some of the newer advancements, the chat GPTs and the way that technology is trending? And what's your take, like a positive, negative future of sales? What are your thoughts? I mean, I think whether it's positive or negative, it's there. Like anything else in sales, if you don't turn that stone over, you're missing out on something that your competitors are probably doing. I am not a believer that like chat GPT is going to put all sales reps out of business. I do think, however, chat GPT is going to make a smart sales rep way more efficient. We talk about personalization and personalized emails. Like there's no bigger hack in the world than letting chat GPT write that personalized email for you. Right. <laughs> and then you just go in and make it your small little tweaks. Think of mm-hmm. how much time you're saving, right? Everyone's been trying to crack the code on personalization at scale forever. Like, I do think this is probably the way that we're going to be able to do that. Like when these things get a little bit smarter and can like read someone's LinkedIn profile and spit back a bunch of personal information, I think like that's a game changer. And I think that all your prospects are going to know you probably used an AI tool for this, (laughs) but if it's what everybody's doing and it's relevant, like that's the word, right? As long as whatever's coming out, I don't care if I wrote it, if you wrote it, if ChatGPT wrote it, if it's relevant and meaningful and personalized and going to help me, you're going to get my attention. Like I'm at least going to read it. And that's the game for BDR, right? How do I get 10 seconds of your time? Whether it's to open and read my email, whether it's to answer my call. So I think that like anything else, you have to leverage it, right? Like some people are going to resist it in the beginning. You know, we saw it with like sales loft and outreach and, you know, it exploded and then people kind of resisted it. And like, it's here to stay. Like it's a necessary tool to perform this job. Three years from now, maybe even less, some sort of like a paid version of chat GPT or something else in that space is going to be in every sales stack. Yeah, I believe that too. Kind of freaky, but who knows? Maybe we can harness it and and do some damage with it. As long as it drives pipeline, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Awesome. So I know we're at the end of our time here. This was really good conversation. I learned a lot just hearing, you know, your take and I just think like those broad strokes, like the way that the different sections of the business, different silos can work together. I think that that's a massively valuable piece of information there. You know, if anybody's listening that is in a leadership role, like I think just like Joe said, just strike those conversations, get alignment. And I think that a whole world of good would come from that. Happy to join and, you know, have a conversation. I think that we covered a lot of good topics. You know, if anybody wants to connect with me, I'm really responsive on LinkedIn. That's probably your best avenue. But no, just really appreciate the time here. And uh, I thought it was a great conversation. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much again. Really good stuff. And we'll be in contact. Awesome. Thank you. The Outbound Sales Podcast is brought to you by Uplead, the premier source for accurate B2B data you need to connect with and close your most valuable buyers. With a focus on data accuracy, Uplead offers a 95 plus percent accuracy guarantee. To learn more about how Uplead can help you find accurate B2B data of the people you want to do business with, visit our website at www.uplead.com. Don't forget to search for the Outbound Sales Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts to stay updated on all of our latest episodes. Thank you for listening, and we hope you find value in each episode.